Hey, welcome back. This is episode five of the Crying in My Cheesecake podcast. Thank you so much for coming. I just appreciate and I don't take for granted the time that you put with me in your ears. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than the last. It's going to be about um, the evolution of the modern diet. So it's going to be more of, a, of an education and kind of reflection within ourselves of how we have come to where we are today in our nutrition and wellness. It's no secret that the diseases of civilization are impacting you. As the world has grown, so has increased chronic health symptoms. McDonald's, frozen meals, Campbell's, cereal aisles that never end, fried chicken and apple pie, taco packets, highly processed foods, refined sugar, refined flours, vegetable oils. When these are the most easily and readily available foods to us, it is no wonder we struggle with obesity and sadness and disconnect from our body and multiple chronic health symptoms like that heart disease, diabetes, and cancers. How did we get here to a place where chronic health symptoms are common? Well, let's go back to the original human diet to see where we began. Let me first be clear, the question or rebuttal of, well, we're so different today than our early ancestors. Let me speak into that. While our lives and stressors and things around us are much different today, our DNA is still 99.9% the same as the original humans. Isn't that kind of crazy and kind of cool at the same time? All right, early diets represented a great deal of variability and variety from location to location and season to season. Living in diverse communities... In climates across the world, there was no one paleo diet. In fact, there wasn't a template that people were printed out and handed across the globe that told people how to eat. No, they were living seasonally and ate what was locally sourced. While there was so much diversity there across the globe, there were some key commonalities amongst all of these ancestors across the globe, okay? So there was some common dietary consumption that, that we saw. The first one is that foods were nutrient-dense, seasonal, locally sourced, and minimally processed. The second is that basic food processing techniques increased the density and availability of nutrients. The third is societies were omnivorous. Though some societies relied heavily on plant foods, no early human diets were completely free of animal foods. So, spoiler alert, there were no healthy vegan populations. No matter what Netflix or the next New York Times best-selling book, because you buy it, says. Living with these three connecting commonalities, people were free from obesity and diabetes and heart disease and cancers. And by the way, these things, the obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancers, these things are known as diseases of civilization. You could rebut my statements again and say, well, yes, this may be the case that they were free of these diseases of civilization because they died early. Well, it is true that they had a shorter lifespan than we do today, but these averages don't consider challenges that are largely absent from modern life, like they had high rates of infant mortality, high rates of warfare, trauma, accidents, exposure to the elements, and a complete lack of any kind of modern medical care. If you were to compare our lifespans with theirs on equal playing ground, we're actually living an equivalent lifespan with them. The difference, when they reached their older ages, they didn't get obesity, inflammatory diseases, heart disease, gout, hypertension, most cancers. What on earth literally happened? Well, researchers and scientists think that there are six things that we can attribute the change over time to, the change, the disconnect and the unhealth that we have now experienced, the diseases of modern civilization, how that they came to be. The first is the agricultural revolution. Now, as I start to talk about the agricultural revolution, my heartstrings tug. 
because I grew up with friends and family that are in um, integritous farmers. I don't even know if that's a word. I mean, I'm going to say a lot of words. I don't know other words. Anyway, the, they have integrity. They farm with integrity. And I know that my friends and family that I grew up with may cringe because I'll say agricultural revolution. And they cringe because on the daily, they're constantly fighting a stigma from people that only learn half-truths or don't care to ask or research themselves. These farmers then fight that stigma of their small, medium, or even some large operations, and they're not about the mass production and money. It's about the integrity that goes into their farming. For the purpose of this episode, I'll only go into the effects of the agricultural revolution on foods as I'm studying. I'd encourage you to talk face-to-face, not through chats, not through messengers, but face-to-face with your local farmers. The agricultural revolution, going back to this, it was not one event. A lot of people thought it was just one big boom thing, kind of like the American Revolution that was one war, right? The agricultural revolution was not one event. It actually happened over a period of time in at least five areas of the world. Southwest Asia, China, Mesoamerica, the Andes of South America, and the eastern United States. The cost of the agricultural revolution includes fewer and less diverse nutrients, rapid loss of bone density, habitat and soil degradation, increased spread of communicable diseases, I think that's a little relevant right now, creation of social hierarchies, inequality, slavery, and genocide, average carbohydrate intake skyrocketed, and protein intake plummeted. Quality of protein decreased, and don't come at me with soy because soy actually interferes with protein absorption. Tooth decay, iron deficiency, anemia, infant mortality increase, decreased bone density. This is all as a, just if you look at the agricultural revolution, this is the takeaways of the cost of the agricultural revolution. The second thing is the introduction of refined sugar. Yes, I'll be the first to say that sugar doesn't make you fat. Overconsumption of calories makes you fat. While that is true, the overconsumption of calories makes you fat, we've had such an increase in sugar in everything we eat, especially easy meals or easy foods. You know, sugar started as a luxury in the 1600s and only the wealthy could afford it. And it kind of reminds me of how cigarettes, you know, when cigarettes started coming out, they were marketed to the wealthy. But just like cigarettes, Over time, the price came down for sugar and it became a staple for everyone. Starting out though, people were only eating a few pounds per person per year of sugar. Fast forward to today and we're taking in 150 to 200 pounds of sugar per person per year. Because of this, we have learned that sugar has harmful biological effects. The third milestone in our nutrition degradation, I I would call it, is the Industrial Revolution. You know, people were flocking to cities for new factory jobs, and new jobs caused them to abandon their small town living, and then they, which means that they left behind their food sources. Now there was a need to process food in order to avoid spoiling while in transit to people in the cities. So, because of the Industrial Revolution, we were introduced to white flour, white sugar vegetable oil. And they now, these three things now make up 50% of the calories the average person consumes each day. The industrial revolution also has caused us to become more sedentary than ever. We are chronically sleep deprived. In fact, one third of Americans sleep less than six hours a night. And quite frankly, we get proud of it. You know, I can survive on less sleep than you. That means I'm working harder, which leads into the next one that we are working harder than ever before. And many of us live and work in isolating and alienating social environments. The fourth milestone is the rise of big food. Now, Nestle 
Kellogg's and Post were the original big food companies. And, you know, they started out with great intentions, but over time, their intentions moved to a motivation of profit. Let's talk about Coca-Cola, for example. It was launched in the 1800s alongside Dr. Pepper and Pepsi. Coca-Cola started with alcohol and cocaine and slowly and silently removed those two ingredients, replacing it with sugar. Is it any wonder how alcohol, cocaine, and food addictions are literally targeting the same pleasure receptors in the brain if a company can slowly and silently change ingredients and still get the same results? With the rise of big food, though, comes another cost. They have tremendous influence over their public policy and the research that's get, that gets done. The fifth milestone is the is World War II and the chemical revolution. Thinking about World War II, we think about the Holocaust first, usually, at least over here in America, in North America. Then we think about Japan, if we remember to think about it, because that happened, you know, it affected Hawaii. You know, that's further out there. That's not quite the mainland, the CONUS. But World War II ended up having the ability to test chemical warfare in the military front. We used two atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hiroshima was considered a dud because it only had a third of the expected impact, and Nagasaki was considered a success. So making the connection in the mindset around chemicals during this time was to say that people People believed chemicals meant power, might, prosperous, and control. This led the change, or this started the change of how foods were produced and how they're actually produced still to this day. The result, cheap, abundant, highly processed, non-perishable, covered in chemicals, foods. We have foods now that satisfy the taste buds, but they don't nourish us. Lastly, the digital revolution or information age has and is still transforming our health. There's a lot of research being done and we don't have all the answers yet. The science is not able to have all the answers yet. But something that we do know is that the digital living that we currently have, it impacts the way we eat, move, sleep, work, and live. Our quality of physical activity and outdoor leisure continues to fall the more we are in this digital age or the information age. Our regular diverse movement is a basic requirement for healthy mitochondria and balanced gut flora, and we're not doing it. Movement helps move lymph through the body, which supports the health and function of our immune system and natural detoxification pathways. We need to move, and we're not. The digital age has negatively affected our posture. Yeah, mom and grandma are right. I guarantee their posture is not right either. And they probably didn't know why posture matters. But posture together with movement has significant impact on the function of our digestive systems. The worse our posture, the worse our ability to digest and absorb the nutrients we need to thrive, not live, thrive. And then this last one is blue light, the you know the increase of blue light. We don't quite know all the effects, but we do know that it somehow and for some reason affects the sleep quantity and quality that we have. These six revolutions or changes in our culture and technology over time have affected our nutrition and wellness positively and negatively. While I mostly stated the negative facts, we know that there are some positives of each of these points as well. Just like thinking about our wellness, we need to think about the bigger picture. Is the positive worth the negative? How do we move forward in light of all this information? According to Dr. Stephen Lee, a biological anthropologist, he wrote the book 100 Million Years of Food. And in that book, he chronicles his travels of the globe, studying why humans have chosen the foods that they've eaten throughout history. And then he wanted to know what can we learn through that? He's made a few recommendations of what we should do next. The first one is to move like our ancestors. Try to walk two hours a day. Now, I'll say I was convicted about that, that I do not walk two hours a day. How do I get that to work? I'll talk about that in a minute. The second is to eat traditional cuisines. The older, the better. 
three, eat what your ancestors ate to make best use of the genetic adaptations that have occurred in your lineage. Do you know where your ancestors are from? Do you know what foods seasonally and what foods in the hunting season, thinking about hunting seasons, how do those play out in where you live and where you grew up? Eat sustainably raised plants and animals that adapted to your local environment rather than foods shipped from far away. Avoid fad diets. As Stephen points out, our bodies are designed to thrive on a wide variety of foods in the form of time-tested traditional diets. Thinking about that road back to health, in light of all that you've learned in this episode, you may be overwhelmed with some realities you may not have known. And you may be thinking, oh, wow, I have a lot of work to do. And some people may respond to this excitedly and highly motivated. But remember, motivation is an emotion and emotions are fleeting. You'll likely be motivated for a while until it becomes hard and then you go back to your prior ways. Or you could be on the opposite end of the spectrum after hearing about all these factors that affect our health. You may be overwhelmed so much that you say, nope, no way, I can't do any of this. It's just too hard. It's nothing I can achieve anyway. So I'm just going to go on with my own life the way it is. Neither of these extremes, highly motivated or highly unmotivated, will change anything. Simply taking one thing at a time that is easy to incorporate in your life, not take away from your life, will be enough to start the process. For example, maybe you're at a desk job and you find yourself moving less and less. Maybe your next right step is to go for a 20-minute walk after lunch or dinner every day. That 20 minutes may increase over time and you may find yourself reaching that recommended two hours of walking every day over a course of a year or two. And that right there is success. Looking for health is not found in social media's conflicting posts. Talking to your friends who are just as confused and getting information the same place as you are. In fact, when we are ready to walk the road, or maybe crawl, the road back to health, it starts with acknowledging our ancestors, eating, moving, and living in ways that honor the hunter-gatherer genes we've all inherited. like, subscribe, and rate this podcast at five stars. Thank you so much.